Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today on the show, we're talking about modesty. And before we get into the research that we found, we first wanted to share what some of you think about this issue of modesty. Um, as we were researching, we took to the Stuff Mom Never Told You Facebook page and said, hey, what what are your thoughts on this issue about telling girls to cover up, um, about this so-called modesty movement taking place? And here are just some samples of what some of you had to say. Yeah, uh, I have a note here from Elise who brings up weather and body image all in one fell swoop. She says, modesty is just a social construct. There is nothing inherently wrong with bare skin. It is simply too hot where I live to be fully covered all the time. And I hate the double standard that allows men to go shirtless while women cannot. That said, I personally tend to wear a bit more clothing because society has successfully made me ashamed of my five pounds overweight body. Caitlin brought up something that a number of women also mentioned, which is the issue of boobs, especially if you have ample boobs. It can be harder to adhere to certain modesty standards. Uh, So Caitlin writes, I personally choose to dress more modestly. I'm a bigger girl with a, quote, ample bosom. So even the less revealing outfits can make me look ahem endowed. I have zero problem with women my size or any size wearing whatever they feel comfortable in, though. One of my dear friends who is a little smaller than me, but still curvy, wears things that are so low cut they would make me blush, but they look amazing on her. And she has the confidence, too. That is the key. Yeah, and Jamie adds to this, talking about how difficult it is to wear a skirt when you are above average height. She says, even when I stick with a knee-length skirt, I've been accused of showing too much. This is in the professional setting where others are wearing much shorter skirts. Plus, I'm on the busty side, so I can't win either way. Yeah, as a 5'9", almost 5'10", woman, I can... Uh, definitely empathize with the leg length issue. Jennifer McPherson, though, <laughs> made me laugh with her comment. Maybe this is why in all of the, quote, future movies, everyone pretty much just wears the same jumpsuit. <laughs> Problem solved. <laughs> I used to have a jumpsuit. I would totally wear a jumpsuit if, A, it wasn't challenging to find one that fit because I have a super long torso, and B, if I could actually pull off a jumpsuit. Well, yeah, no, mine was definitely not like a fashion jumpsuit. Mine was part of my April O'Neil Halloween costume. It was bright yellow. So well, if that's oh. if that's in in the post-apocalyptic future, then I'm all set. And Yeah, you're ready. Yeah. You're ahead of the curve. Well, I do think one thing that was interesting about all of the comments, because there were a lot of them in response to that question about modesty, was how varied everyone's opinions were. We had a lot of women firmly in the camp of modest is hottest Mm -hmm. and other women saying, you know, modesty is basically a social construct Mm -hmm. and other women saying, you know what, let's just take all of our clothes off because this is ridiculous. What What's your opinion? Do you feel like people should toe a certain line or just dress however it makes them happy, even if that's just like a bikini top? What do you think? What do you think? I think that there are certain situations that call for certain types of outfits. Obviously, if you want to wear a bikini top to a job interview, you're probably not going to get that job unless you're interviewing for a lifeguard position or True. something like that. And I'm all for women dressing 
in a way that makes them feel comfortable and confident, whether that is a turtleneck and a floor length skirt mm-hmm. or a crop top and short shorts. Yeah. Um, I think what's maybe more important and what we'll get into more in the podcast is just checking ourselves on the way that we talk about modesty specifically to girls. Mm-hmm. Because even though there might be a lot of good intentions with talking to girls about the importance of covering them up, covering themselves up and, you know, leaving things to the imagination, a lot of it is often just framed as ultimately making sure that they are appealing sexually to men. Right. What do you think, Caroline? I mean, I, I share I share your opinion. Uh, I think there's a time and a place for everything. I'm not going to wear my pajama shirt to a job interview, you know, or a tank top because I do have uh, I am uh, blessed in the boobular area. And so a shirt that I might wear and find comfortable could actually look to some people inappropriate in the workplace. Yeah, that's the thing. Once we get into the lines of like what is professional, mm-hmm. that's when it does get hard because you can say I should be able to wear whatever I want, but then but also like yes, like I I hear that statement and then I also think well, there's the whole argument in modesty which we'll, we will obviously get into in this podcast talking about like uh covering up for men or around men. Um, but also with my cleavage, I also want you looking at my face, you know? So it's not even so much that I'm like, I better protect myself by covering up. It's more like, I just don't want my boobs to be an issue in every conversation I have. But is that then a double standard if for someone like me, whose cleavage is rarely an issue... <laughs> Because it's mostly invisible, in which case I could wear the lower cut top to the office and people would probably still be looking me in the eye, even though as a tall woman, if I'm wearing heels, I might be face to face with my boobs. But you know what I mean? It, does that ever feel like uh, a frustrating double standard that if you are a more curvaceous woman, whether it is in the, the boobular region, which is the scientific term for it, or a little lower down the buttular region, mm-hmm. that issue becomes a lot more challenging because it's like, well, then what What am I supposed to wear? Do I have to just cover up my entire figure in order to be deemed appropriate? I know. I, I, I hate it. Yeah. I mean, I, well, it being all of it, the conversation about it, the fact that we have to work so hard every morning to pick out something from our closet to go to work that's not inappropriate. And I don't mean like Kristen and I going to work. I just mean work in general. Yeah. Um, you know, like it's it's such a challenge and women are told from the time they are itty bitty little kids that they have to watch what they wear and, and watch how they dress around people, especially boys and men. Yeah. And uh, this entire head scratching issue of how do we even talk about it? How do we hash all this out is why we wanted to do this episode in the first place, because <laughs> clearly, like I said, judging by the outpouring of Facebook commentary. This is something that a lot of other women have dealt with as well. Mm -hmm. So let's go way, way, way back in time. Um, And first of all, I'll say that when it comes to this very brief historical snapshot of 
modesty, we're not really going to get very much into religion. Yeah, that could be a whole other topic under itself. There were a lot of women on Facebook who brought up things like, you know, veiling, traditional veiling in Islam, also uh, head covering in Judaism and even in some uh, Christian denominations. But that's not really what we want to get at. Yeah, we're, we're kind of going to be focusing more in this episode on the sniping that goes on between and among women, more, more so in a secular kind of viewpoint. Yeah, not, not to say that there aren't certainly religious undertones to a lot of aspects of what is referred to as the modesty movement. Uh, in my personal upbringing in an evangelical Christian home, modesty was a huge thing that was always talked about. Um, but yeah, we're going to stick to the more secular. And we found this paper called Let Modesty Be Her Rainment by Tamina Tariq from 2013. And she talks about the tradition of veiling in the pre-Christian classical era. So focusing on like fourth and third centuries B.C. And it turns out that for well-to-do women in ancient Greece and Rome, veiling or, or covering their hair was a way of a transporting the private domestic space or the proper place for women into the public and doing so in a way that protected the honor of her male guardians her fathers, husbands, brothers, and finally outwardly symbolizing the value of her virginity. I think it's interesting that from the get go, you have something that a woman wears being tied into the honor of a man that she is with. Um, but also this this isn't necessarily all women in these cultures. People who were in the lower classes, including slaves and peasants and others deemed inferior, would not have veiled their hair because nobody cared whether they were of honor or whether they were virgins. But if you were a woman of means, you would certainly cover your hair with uh, different kinds of head coverings at the time. Uh, they were called pharos, himinations, and peplos. And all of this was really to prevent the possibility of men looking at the, the sensualized parts of her body. Because in addition to veiling, she would also wear what we would think of as very modest clothing. But it was important that the hair also be covered because that was also a highly sensualized part and still is of the female body. And by essentially blocking those off from view, the thought was, well, then that would lower the chances of him fantasizing about her, which even just in the fantasy realm would demean her. Well, now, Kristen, you wrote about this whole hair issue on StuffOneNeverToldYou.com, and I think it's interesting to bring up why hair was so sexualized during this time. Yeah, if you go back to ancient Greece, Hippocrates, for instance, had this theory that when men and women had sexual intercourse, that his semen would actually be directed into a woman's hair. So our long flowing hair is just a, a mass of semen magnets. And <laughs> that, and so in that way, women's hair was seen as a symbolic extension of our genitalia. That is just so weird and like the opposite of Occam's razor. Like why is semen filling up your hair? Like the simplest explanation for, I, 
I don't know. Because where else would it go? I guess it needed. <laughs> I guess it needed someplace. Yes. Where else would it go? Where else could it go? It, but this is also side note, and I feel like we need to do a whole podcast on this because I want to learn more. This also was very much linked to the tradition of a bride wearing a veil because Mm -hmm. she, you know, has her face covered by the veil. She's walking down the aisle. And in that way, her sexuality is still intact and preserved, but then broken when the husband lifts it up just to gaze on her. It was the power of the male gaze. They got the power of the male gaze all the way back in ancient Greece and Rome. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, we already talked about how women would wear head coverings to go out to protect their honor and everything when they went out of the house to extend that private sphere into public. And so by wearing that veil, the bride is being protected as she's handed off from the one man in her life to the other man in her life. Well, in addition to us walking around with <laughs> these uh, all these semen magnets on our head, a.k.a. our hair, uh, this was also a time when women were they, they, people were very concerned about protecting women's honor and sort of covering up all signs of our sexuality because this was also an era when women were presumed to be sexually aggressive and prone to hysteria and we would essentially go wild if we weren't being physically attended to well enough. Well, so in that argument, it only makes sense that women should dress modestly if we're so aggressively sexual and we're always trying to trap a man into having sex with us and like doing things to our hair and whatever. Well, obviously, we should veil ourselves and cover ourselves up, right? Yeah. Yeah. There there are all, all sorts of conflicting messages that still, though, echo today in... A lot of the modesty messages that girls and women Mm -hmm. are being taught. And there was a quote from Tamina Tariq's paper that jumped out to me. Uh, She said, neither the veil nor its usage has ever been monolithic. The discourse of modesty, shame and protection, however, has always been present. Uh, and, And those three things, modesty, shame and protection are very much interwoven in that relationship between those three factors, I think is, is a big reason why we have all of these sort of questions about modesty today. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And speaking of the modesty movement today, when you move into the late 90s and early 2000s, you start to see a lot of literature being published on women remaining modest, dressing modestly and how that will benefit them both out in society and in their relationships with men. Yeah, there's Wendy Shallot, whose name comes up all the time. Uh, she's actually been, been referred to as the mother of the modesty movement. And in her first book, A Return to Modesty, she wrote, Many of the problems we hear about today, sexual harassment, date rape, are connected to culture's attack on modesty. And I believe that came out in 1999. And I remember this clearly because I was in high school and this was the era of low-rise jeans and Britney Spears at her peak before she shaved her head, and specifically Britney Spears at the MTV Video Music Awards wearing those low-slung pants, sparkly pants with the thong visible pulled out from it and how horrified everyone was by this. And I remember also having like a conversation after conversation with my mother about why it should be okay for me to wear thongs and how horrified my mother was at low rise jeans. There was a lot of modesty panic at the turn of the millennium. Huh? Interesting. Yeah, I had to, I definitely had to start 
uh, buying thongs. And by I, I mean my mother bought them for me because the jeans I was wearing were so tight. See, my mother never would have. Because I gave her, of course, the argument of, but visible panty line. And she mm-hmm. said, no, 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 no. Thongs are for sexual activity and you will not be wearing them. But she finally broke down, I think, like my junior year. And I just bought one. Huh. And it's funny now that, that as a 30 year old woman, I'm like, I would never wear a thong anymore. I wear I wear the the laser cut, uh, like really super thin boy, boy shorts instead. Listeners are learning a lot about us. They are. I, I do not like a thong. Um, but yeah, so Shallot's book, A Return to Modesty, and then her 2007 follow up, Girls Gone Mild, uh, were accompanied by Don Eden's 2006 book, The Thrill of the Chaste. A lot of wordplay going on here. Finding Fulfillment While Keeping Your Clothes On and Laura Sessions Steps 2008 Unhooked. How young women pursue sex, delay love, and lose it both. And that's sort of a a huge part of this modesty discussion among a lot of these authors, basically saying, like, part of the problem is that young women are dressing really provocatively and sluttily, and they're feeling forced into dressing that way and engaging in sexual activity, and we should empower our young women to wear a turtleneck. Yeah, and uh, there were a lot of common culprits repeated over and over again in these kinds of books. So, for instance, Britney Spears comes up over and over again. Uh, there's also the so-called moms gone wild, who are you know moms who we hear about who dress even wilder than their daughters, and along with that, permissive parenting, sex educators, feminists. I mean, apparently, feminists are very much to blame, uh, and of course, hookup culture as well. And mm-hmm. and the big argument with these modesty books is that. It's not just uh, girls' sexual purity at stake. It's also self-esteem, that by dressing this way, we are degrading ourselves and thus um, just eroding our collective female self-esteem. And then on top of this, we have a very male Harvard professor, Harvey Mansfield, who wrote Manliness, which urged women to cover up. He said that women play the men's game, which they are bound to lose. Without modesty, there is no romance. It isn't so attractive or so erotic to men. Yeah, and that kind of leads to the whole modest is hottest sort of thing of, well, if you really want to be as sexually attractive as you can possibly be, then cover up so that you leave something to the imagination, make him wait for it, make him win it, I guess, by marrying you, and then everything will be... Fine, which that's not a perfect message to deliver either, because ultimately it's like, wait, wait, I thought the point of this was to build girls self-esteem outside of their sexual desirability. Oh, wait, no, you're telling them to cover up as a way to amplify their sexual desirability. Yeah, I know it, it gets it gets super sticky because, I mean, they're accusing feminists of ruining young women's lives but there, people like Shallot are making the assertion that feminists as a whole, as this monolithic group, are telling young women, you've got to go out there and have lots of sex with lots of people or else you're not a real woman or a real feminist. And it's like, whoa, 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 pump the brakes. That's not what feminism is about. Feminism is about choices, right? And about supporting women and doing what they choose to do. And so while I feel that you should absolutely have the choice and the option to dress as modestly as you want, 
I think that we forget that women are sexual creatures, too. And this whole discussion about modesty often circles around women covering up to protect themselves from men because feminists have been telling us that we should go out and have all this sex and, oh, no, but that's bad for society. It's more like, well, no, I mean, I think that just means that for once people are remembering that women are sexual creatures, too, just like men are, and that we should have the choice if we so desire to dress however we want and have sex if we want or not. Exactly. Well, and I think that's the, the big thing that or not is what's often left out of these conversations. There's never the assumption that it's also or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and on top of these books, they're also around this time in the early 2000s and still today, lots of pro modesty websites popping up, clothing lines. There's even a fashion magazine called Eliza that is all about modest fashions, how to look pretty and fashionable while still covering up. Um, there's even something called the Pure Fashion Training Program, which was started in 2005 to essentially teach girls how to dress modestly. I mean, it's it's all kind of different versions of the same thing. A lot of it does have uh, Christian, very Christian undertones. Um, and as we have, I'm sure, very clearly hinted, not everyone is a huge fan of this modesty movement, particularly when uh, Girls Gone Mild by Wendy Shalit came out in 2007. There was a lot of conversation about it and a lot of critique. Yeah, around this time, the critiques that were coming out were were so... I, I thought they put things pretty darn well, especially one from Shira Tarrant over at Bitch Magazine, where she talks about how girls and women, this is a quote, girls and women are charged with being the gatekeepers of what's sexually appropriate, but... What's judged inappropriate is measured by the effect it has on men. And I think this is the key to understanding the argument against this particular modesty movement. Because it's a catch-22. Because we are the gatekeepers of our own sexuality, but we are also responsible for a men's reaction to us. Yeah. Um, well, on something that Joshua Zeitz, who's the author of Flapper, a madcap story of sex, style, celebrity, and the women who made America modern, was also talking to Newsweek about this whole modesty movement. And he said, the thing is, this is really nothing new. There have always been culturally conservative reactions to spikes in outward expressions of women's sexualities as during the era of the new woman and the flapper. People were horrified by it. Mm -hmm. And he says that, quote, the concern at the time was that the culture was sexualizing young girls. And we're talking about back in the 20s. Um, And he says that the backlash then came during the Great Depression when you see a movement to get women back into the home, in part to correct this culture of licentiousness. So, I mean, and you can, I feel like any time you have a progressive cultural movement, especially one that trends more liberal, there's always the flip side to it. There's always the backlash. There's always the fear and the panic that that the status quo is being challenged a bit too much. And it will all lead to us going to, you know, just hell in a handbasket. Yeah. So what do we have now? We have more women in the workplace, more women as bosses. We have the gay rights movement, more and more states. okay, gay marriage. There's a lot of one would say, cultural change going on. Well, and more women having 
sex more openly. And by that, I mean not like out in parks, (laughs) but but being more open about their sexuality. Yeah, about choosing. Yes, about choosing to participate. And going back to that quote from Shira Tarrant at Bitch Magazine, talking about how we're the gatekeepers of what's sexually appropriate, but we're also um, being judged for it. Um, Anne K. Reem at the L.A. Times wrote something similar. She said, it's not a lack of female modesty, but a sense of male entitlement that leads to sexual violence. So if we're looking at the modesty movement as a way for women to protect themselves and to remain pure and all of this stuff to remain safe. I don't think the modesty movement, and obviously Anne K. Reem does not either, think that this is the way to do it. People, it's not that wearing a turtleneck and a long skirt is going to prevent rape from happening. Yeah, and that quote from Anne K. Reem was in direct response to Shallot's uh, quote in A Return to Modesty, saying that many of the problems we hear about today, sexual harassment and date rape, are connected to our culture's attack on modesty. And saying that how you dress will determine whether or not you will be raped is completely victim blaming Mm -hmm. and is disproven by statistics and also disproven by just taking a walk down the sidewalk in some sweatpants. You'll still get catcalled. It just happens. Um, so obviously there are lots of problematic messages that are tied up with this when, when ultimately the message should be there are certain times and places when certain uniforms are called for, as in the workplace, sometimes in the, in schools, etc. But beyond that, you know, women should be taught to value themselves and have self-esteem outside of their bodies as sexual commodities. Um, absolutely. But when women are being told to dress a specific way, specifically so that they will not you know, attract sexual assault, then that just doesn't even, it doesn't even make logical sense. And just for one side note on all this, one thing that's often tied up with the modesty movement is virginity pledges. And studies have found that kids who do take virginity pledges are just as likely to have premarital sex and have higher rates of STD transmissions, probably because uh, they might not have received as comprehensive of sex education mm-hmm. and they're doing things in secret. So something's not necessarily working by just saying, nope, let's just 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 shut off your sexuality and everything will be fine. Well, Kristen, you mentioned dress codes in schools a second ago, and we are going to talk more about that whole issue when we come right back from a quick break. Now, I've talked about dress codes before on the podcast. We dedicated an entire episode to this. So this is a little bit of rehashing, but it's important to talk about because especially when we're looking at modesty in more secular settings, School dress codes are the prime place where this happens, where these messages of girls, you, your bodies are just distractions. Then this is, this is where it's happening. It's happening mostly in the classroom. And there are plenty of reasons why kids should be expected to dress certain ways in school. 
I do think that there's a lot to the idea of dressing for success. Mm -hmm. And when you are, you know, dressed in a certain way, it kind of helps you feel better. It helps you pay more attention. However, a lot of dress codes take it too far and end up penalizing certain types of body types. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's the same thing that we talked about at the beginning of the podcast with any girl who is slightly curvier or bigger in any way than what is considered like a safe body almost is is penalized. Like something will look too low cut or too short or too this or too that. God forbid you're tall and slim and your shorts are the exact same shorts that your friend is wearing, but they just look longer on her and shorter on you. You know, it's like it's a lose lose proposition when it comes to uh, getting girls in trouble for what they're wearing. And, and I totally agree with you that yes, there obviously should be guidelines. I went to school with a strict dress code. Um, but when you get into the argument that girls have to dress a certain way so as not to distract the other half of the population at school, I think that's problematic. Yeah. I mean, cause toss in that too, the fact that girls' bodies are developing at different times. And when you are, say, an 11, 12, 13 year old girl, and you got boobs out of nowhere or you got a butt or both out of nowhere and you're kind of dealing with how, you know, the world around you is now responding to this more womanly body while you're still dealing with the fact that you have an adolescent brain is confusing and confounding enough to begin with. But to then have adults tell you that your body is a dangerous distraction for yourself and for other people is certainly harmful. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are all sorts of examples of modesty and dress codes kind of gone wild. Uh, there was one incident that went viral that a lot of listeners have probably heard about during prom season earlier in 2014 when a girl went to a homeschool prom And she wore a dress. It was short, but she double checked that it was going to be fingertip length, even with her super high, high heels on. And she was eventually kicked out of the prom because she was told by a female chaperone that she was distracting male chaperones who were watching her and watching her dance, to which she wrote a blog post about it and was enraged by it, understandably, mm-hmm. and it went completely viral. Right, yeah, and she was basically arguing that she was within the state address code, that it was fingertip length, and more so, what are these male chaperones doing, looking down at all of us and judging what we're wearing and determining whether it's inappropriate? Well, not not even just judging, but actually saying that they they were becoming too aroused by the sight of this like 15, 16 year old girl. So she needed to be removed. They didn't need to do anything with checking their own thoughts and fantasies. It was her as the gatekeeper of her own sexuality and apparently the reactions of everyone else around her. She's the one who needs to be punished for that. And um, even I mean, I feel like things like that uh, when, when people are like, oh, well, it's a homeschool prom. Oh, of course that's going to happen because it's just a bunch of evangelical Christian nuts. That's where the only place it happens. No, no. As a past former evangelical homeschooler, I feel okay saying that. And also there have been issues in public schools uh, at proms with girls who have dresses that meet the dress code, but 
their bodies are simply deemed like too busty. Nope, we can see too much of your boobs. We can see too much of your butts. Go cover up. Mm hmm. But, I mean, talking about school, it's not just happening at high schools or elementary schools or whatever. It's also happening at nursing school. If we look at UT Austin, they had a modesty-promoting sign hung up in an elevator, I think it was, or somewhere in a hall that basically was like, hey, guys and gals, you're at nursing school now, so don't dress inappropriately. And it's like, if they had just left it at that. Well, it specifically said no cleavage. Yeah, but they didn't just leave it at that. They listed like no cleavage, no short skirts, no short shorts, no this and that. And so it was obviously targeting women and women's bodies. But the sign was removed thanks to social media. The sign was removed within 24 hours. Yeah. And the thing is, this is where we get into the difference between intent and impact, because you could say that the intent of All of these messages is perfectly fine, well, and good because Mm -hmm. the intent is for girls to have a healthy self-esteem, for them to, you know, not experience sexual harassment or sexual assault, uh, to create more positive and effective learning environments, all perfectly good intentions. But the problem is the impact is not that because a lot of times the messages that girls are being delivered is that, you know what, the fact of the matter is you're living in a rape culture, so you better cover up because if you don't, you will be considered as someone who is fine to sexually assault. Yeah. And that sounds extreme, but when you break down those kinds of messages because it's, well, I mean, boys will be boys, so you better cover your boobs or else yeah. they're going to want to honk them. Like, it just doesn't, it's insulting to girls, but it's also insulting to boys. Yeah, because, yeah, you're telling girls that your body is dangerous. You're going to distract everyone and it'll be your fault if you get assaulted. But you're delivering the message to boys that, well, it's fine. Boys will be boys. You obviously can't control your animal sexuality. So if you do assault that girl, you know, it's just, of course. Yeah. And there was one thing that I wanted to look into, which is kind of debunking this whole boys will be boys nonsense, because I do think that that a lot of it just strips everyone of agency, because essentially we're all powerless over our own bodies. Girls are powerless over, you know, the messages that their cleavage might deliver. And boys apparently are powerless over the messages that their penises deliver to their brains. Because a lot of times the the comments that you hear is that, well, boys and men are just visual creatures and you can't, you know, we, we really do need to just protect what they then see. But when you look into studies on the sex-specific responses to visual stimuli, yes, men are completely visually stimulated, absolutely, um, but A, so are women, and also the specific response uh, to the, the sexual messages that men infer from said stimuli do have beyond biological uh, influencers. And what we're talking about is coming from a 2007 meta-analysis called Sex-Specific Content Preferences for Visual Sexual Stimuli, a review by Kim Wallen and Heather Rupp. And in looking at how men sort of uh, respond when they are viewing a woman or women in- interacting with women, 
they found that that sort of almost rape culture response that we expect, that we think, oh, well, if a woman's exposed, that's her fault, and she's just arousing all of the men folk, that that response is actually minimized in men who have more exposure to women, have been in experience, co-educational experiences with them. Um, basically, as I would interpret it, men who respect women as people more? Yeah, there was clearly a strong correlation between the interactions that men had with women, essentially like the more they were simply seen as people rather than sex objects. And the <laughs> the inference from seeing a sexual stimuli as an invitation, an open invitation mm-hmm. for them to approach and interact at will. Because the thing about it is I don't see anything wrong whatsoever with Men or women. That's another thing in all of this. Women are also visually stimulated. But anyway, uh, I see nothing wrong with men or women seeing another body and being sexually aroused by that. That is simply going to happen. I don't think the the ultimate purpose of watch what you dress is to try to like shut down our complete and total sexual responses. It's more when we get into the rape culture territory. Mm -hmm. It's more that visual stimuli and that thought of, huh, wow, that's a very attractive person. And even to the point of that's a very attractive person and I wouldn't mind being naked with them. That line then going into, and you know what? I'm just going to go, you know, get naked with that person, whether he or she likes it or not. Right. So then the researchers were also talking about how this whole stereotype of men being so visually stimulated and women not apparently being visually stimulated at all, according to just stereotype. They were talking about how because there's that expectation and that stereotype that exists, that women are less likely to say that they are sexually stimulated because of visual cues. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times we're not supposed to. Obviously, like women have for so long been the the gatekeepers over and over again of sexual propriety. Mm-hmm. You know, women don't. That's why, you know, the popularity of Fifty Shades of Grey is so mind blowing to people because it's women openly saying like, oh, wow, I'm really into this. And because it's sexually arousing, mm-hmm. apparently women talk like this, too. <laughs> and when it comes to sexual objectification, which obviously is a, a big piece of this, of seeing Women not as people, but as sex objects. Therefore, their gratification. Uh, one 2008 study found that there is a learned part of that. That's not just some natural, as we often call it, instinct of a visual creature. No, it found that men are often taught from an early age to emphasize physical appearance and that they tend to be more aroused in contexts in which they can objectify another person and that that tendency is often learned hmm. because we're societally, we cater to that. Interesting. And while that might sound like we have a hopeless situation, that's actually good news is the mm-hmm. fact that, oh, no, there's actually a lot of learning and socialization involved with this. I think it's highly possible in the same way that we want to teach girls to refocus their self-esteem away from just the value of their bodies. We can also teach boys to refocus the value that they see in women beyond just being potential sex objects. Right. It's unlearning that entitlement we talked about earlier that actually is what leads to the danger of rape and sexual assault, not what a woman is wearing. Exactly. 
And I want to underscore again that this isn't an argument for just to let people always in every single context dress however they want. Um, I think that it would be foolish to say that 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 the way you dress will, you know, shouldn't have to, it shouldn't make any kind of impact on what other people think about you. There are issues when it's good to dress professionally or where it's good to dress in clean, neat clothes where, you know, there's definitely an interaction between how we dress and how we feel. Because I do think there comes a time for a lot of girls, especially when we hit puberty, uh, at least I, I can just speak for myself, when you start getting curious about what it is to feel sexy and feel desired and you want to dress in provocative ways and you want to test those boundaries. And it's like, okay, well, the question then becomes how how do we talk to girls about this? How do we... Because I think just telling girls, no, 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 just don't do that. Mm-hmm. You'll be asking for it. Isn't going to solve anything at all. Even if she does say, okay, it's nothing but overalls and turtlenecks from here on out. It's not really, that's not really teaching her anything beyond just what to put on. That's not, you know, that's not really building up, um, building up this self-esteem. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think a lot of it goes back to the choices that we talked about earlier, the choices of dressing modestly, if you so choose, and not tying sexuality or, or the potential for danger just to a woman's body. Yeah, I mean, because the taking this back a few levels, it's not so much about the clothes. It's the fact that ultimately... You know, the, the best thing a girl can be called in our culture is beautiful and desirable. And I think that, that's where we get into the trouble. It's not that girls want to wear thongs when sometimes it's completely unnecessary, which brings up my follow up question of is a thong ever necessary? Really? Um, more so than the clothes. I just think that it's. The issue that we need to take a closer look at of, well, why is it that the highest compliment you can pay to a girl in our society is that she's beautiful, is that she is desirable, is that, you know, and and why for boys is obtaining a girl of having sex with a girl some kind of prize to chase down? Mm-hmm. And there, there was one Facebook comment that jumped out to me from... Uh, someone who is arguing in favor of dressing modestly because we have a natural line of decency. To which I say, mm. but then why is it that if you travel around the world to some areas, it's natural, in quotes, for women to be topless, for women to be far less modest than we are in Western society? All of that really, to me, is evidence that Modesty, in many ways, is a construct, and we just need to pay close attention to what we are really saying when we are saying, be modest. Yeah, I'm definitely interested to hear from people. Once, you know, we prompted people before this episode to tell us what they thought. I'm interested to hear the same people respond once they've heard us talking about this. Especially if you have girls. This is the thing that I still don't, I still don't know how to talk to a girl about the issue of dressing without alienating her from her own body. Right. If that makes sense. 
So if anyone has cracked that code, please let us know. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is where you can send your letters, and I know we're going to be getting a lot of them. Uh, you can also message us on Facebook or tweet us at MomStuffPodcast. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you that have nothing to do with modesty right now. Well, I've got an email here from Becky about our women traveling alone, our women's wanderlust episode. She writes, thank you so much for your podcast about women traveling alone. I, too, traveled to Italy on my own to study abroad. While it was pretty nerve wracking to fly international on my own, the freedom I felt was amazing. It's also the best feeling in the world after small victories, like finding somewhere decent to eat on your own, finding your plane, making it through a day without feeling like you want to cry a little. It's been five years since I went to Italy, and I'm looking forward to going back again. This podcast gave me an extra nudge to make that goal a reality, whether I go by myself or with another female companion. It makes me scared that I forego my travel dreams, as corny as that sounds, just because I'm afraid of experiencing things alone. So thanks for the encouragement. And thank you, Becky. All right. I have a letter from Rochelle. Uh, she said that our Wanderlust podcast made her long for her first solo travel trip to the States 10 years ago. Uh, she says, I'm from Perth, Western Australia, and I've since been back to America two more times. Back in 04, I was 22, and I had signed up to work at an American summer camp in the Poconos. I had a little time before camp started to see New York and lots of time afterward to see the rest of America. My parents were very concerned, and my dad even gave me a rape whistle, which I assured him I wouldn't need. Traveling alone, I had a lot of interesting experiences that I wouldn't have had if I was traveling with someone. My first interesting experience happened when I got off the subway in New York after flying in. I had booked a hostel a little further out than I thought. I thought I'd booked somewhere on the Upper West Side, and it ended up being in Harlem. When I came up from the subway, a guy approached me and asked if I needed help with my luggage. He could have been just being a complete gentleman. However, I said that I was fine and carried on to my hostel. It's very true that you are approached more often when you're alone. In New York, I was approached by another tourist asking me for directions. And in L.A., I was waiting at a bus stop when an Aussie couple asked me the difference between dimes and nickels. After a minute of talking, they realized they frequented the store where I worked back home. Very small world. I also had the interesting experience of staying in a unisex four-bed dorm for two weeks, and the whole time I was the only female in the room while the men came and went. I never felt threatened. I ended up being taken under the wing of a slightly older German dude who took me on all sorts of crazy adventures I never would have gotten into had I not been traveling alone. Um, so, Rochelle, I'm so glad you had some amazing solo travel experiences. I um, just had my own to Aruba <laughs> not too long ago, and it was awesome. And I, I definitely felt like I pre- pressed the reset button. I think traveling alone is something that you, the general you, should all do if you get the chance. And thanks to everybody who's written into us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And you can also find all of our social media links as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one, which will also include all of our sources. So you can follow along with us over at StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 